hello. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The white supremacy, especially white male supremacy, that developed in the United States over the course of the European invasion, conquest, and settlement of the Americas created two atrocities and two ongoing legacies arising from those atrocities. One is the creation of chattel slavery of African peoples and the following Jim Crow laws and experience after the ending of slavery that created the racial segregation and the context where black people could be freely and without consequence lynched by the thousands. The other, and older, is the conquest, genocide, sometimes enslavement, enforced confinement to reservations, and often forced assimilation of the American Indian, Native American, and indigenous nations. On this show, I have had interviews relating to the experience of the black community. In this episode, my guest is Lena Epps Brooker, an American Indian from the Lumbee and High Plains Saponi peoples of North Carolina. We will be discussing her life and experiences, and by extension, lives and experiences of other American Indian peoples, especially using her wonderful book, Hot Dogs on the Road, an American Indian Girl's Reflection on Growing Up Brown in a Black and White World. Important to Lena in the accounting of her story is not just that we understand the facts of her experience, but especially the emotional impact of those experiences. I will include a more detailed biography about Lena in my blog spot. But Lena graduated from the Magnolia School in the Saddletree community of Robeson County, where her father, Frank Howard Epps, was principal, and her mother, Grace Smith Epps, was supervisor of Indian schools for the Robeson County Board of Education. Lena is the first American Indian and person of color to graduate from Meredith College in 1962. Of the many things Lena has done, she was an elementary school teacher in Charlotte and served in an administrative position on the North Carolina Commission of Indian Affairs. In her 25 years of living in Raleigh and being active in community affairs, Lena served on the City of Raleigh Human Relations Commission and the Triangle Native American Society. Well, welcome, Lena. Thank you for being with me today. I am delighted to be here with you, David, and to be able to share about my people and perhaps some about the book I wrote about our people. Well, let's begin with that then. Why did you write your book? Well, David, uh, it dawned on me after I had two daughters uh, that I had not shared a lot of details about what my childhood was like as an American Indian in the days of Jim Crow in North Carolina. I had told them basic things like um, that we Indians were not allowed to go to certain places and we had separate schools and churches and they understood that. They always asked or commented about how stupid they thought that was. Um, but it dawned on me that I had told them some facts, but I had not told them about the impact, the feelings that caused for me and my family and others. And I wanted them to know that because um, the facts and the feelings both make up the truth of what it was like. And so I, one afternoon, sat down and thought about what I would like them to know about. And really, it was all about different aspects of my life, school, church, and community, social life. And I decided that I would just take um, instances in my life that were pivotal uh, or either described what those uh, segments were like and that I would include both 
the facts, the hard facts of it and the hard feelings that I experienced. But what I did not want to do, and one reason, the main reason it took me forever to really write the book was I didn't want them to be embittered by the stories because that was not the point. The point was just to let them know. And so that's why I put off writing the book for so long. I wanted them to be old enough to hear it and process it and us talk about it in an intelligent, educated way and not to embitter them, especially about white people. Well, I was doing a lot of other things and I would write some and I would put it down and play tennis or do my job that I got paid for. And then I retired all of a sudden and I had two grandchildren and I'm like, well, if you are ever going to write this, it is time to get started. And so I had the outline the first afternoon that I started. I wrote, I knew the title of the book. I knew the main topics of each story because it's not a biography in the sense that it's my complete life. It's just vignettes. It's storytelling about things that happened to me. Well, you limited it only up through your school, up through graduating college. Yes. Uh, I, the reason I did that, two reasons. Number one, in my mind, that's when my childhood ended and I would be on my own. And I knew that, uh, I mean, obviously many things happened then. And, um, but what I wanted them to know about was really what my life was like when I was growing up and still live with my parents. Well, the title of the book is, as I said in the, in the, at the beginning, was Hot Dogs on the Road, An American Indian Girl's Reflections on Growing Up Brown in a Black and White World. Let's talk about that. Well, David, uh, the title was very easy for me because when I thought about what my life was like as a, a child and then a teenager, a young adult uh, in Robinson County, uh, Hot Dogs on the Road was the one thing that was consistent uh, all during those years. And to me, it reflected what segregation was all about. Hot Dogs on the Road uh, was a time that my brothers and I got all excited uh, when my parents would say that primarily when we were going to visit my dad's family in Person County, uh, just north of Roxborough. And we always knew we would have hot dogs on the road, but it would not be at a cafe or a restaurant. It would be a picnic in a carefully chosen place between rural Robinson County and rural Person County. And my brothers and I just thought that was such a treat. You know, we would have hot dogs and whatever my mother packed in brown paper bags. And it was not until many, many years later that I realized, my brothers and I realized, that the reason we did that was that there were no uh, cafes or restaurants between those two locations that we were certain Indians would be allowed. And this was our parents' way of helping us, particularly when we were young, not to confront the evils of discrimination, the words we might hear, no doubt would hear. And we ended up hearing 
uh, some years later uh, when we attempted to have hot dogs at a restaurant. So to me, this uh, was just such a fitting title because segregation was all about exclusion. Uh, it was also a form of intimidation. It was a way of, quote, keeping people in their place. In other words, white supremacy. And my parents were wise in that they knew that what children hear and experience at a young age can, can so adversely affect children. And they didn't want us to grow up hating anyone or to disliking someone because of the color of their skin. And I knew from a very early age because I heard adults other than my parents talking about the meanness and the, uh, they didn't use the word privilege, but it was privilege that white people had that they would not share with my people or black people, of course. So that's how, um, why I chose that. And um, my brothers and I talked years later about what a wise decision, in our opinion, that was uh, from our parents, because we didn't grow up hating white people. We didn't fear them. We just uh, thought that that law that they talked about, it was the law and that people were not strong enough. So that's how the title came to be. Um, repeat about the laws and, and, and something about not strong enough. My parents uh, always told us when we asked why we couldn't sit downstairs in the movie theater or why we couldn't go to certain restaurants or uh, public, they were public to us, they were in town, why we weren't allowed to participate in um, as the white people were. And so my parents would always just calmly say, well, there, there are laws that people made that separate the three groups of people in Robinson County and in the state. And those laws uh, make it a crime for us to go in to these places. They can have us arrested. And of course, you know, nobody wanted to be arrested as a child. And so my parents would say, but, and he and they would say there are people we feel sure who don't agree with those laws who are white people who are making the laws but they are not strong enough brave enough to say this is wrong and so they said but uh, this will change one day i promise you it will change and then everybody will get to eat wherever they want to. Uh, they didn't tell us that when we were like three years old. They told us that. They told me that I am the was the oldest child. When I had uh, experiences that were very painful and made me very much aware of how many white people in Robinson County viewed and felt about Indian people. And um, my parents had this gift, this wisdom about knowing just how much to tell us at a certain age and how to respond. And though it was painful, um, they did it in a way that did not strike me as being... Um, they made it very clear, you don't hate people. 
Uh, in fact, my mother always said, when people discriminate against other people, um, and I can think of many instances where that had happened to me, and, and I was heartbroken, and I was just sick to my stomach, basically. Uh, my mother would always say, this is so painful. But she said, what you have to remember is that people who do this intentionally say things and do things to make you feel bad, they are either ignorant or they're mean. Now, when my mother said ignorant, and what she meant was they are not educated. They do not understand. They have been taught uh, to hate other people or not like them. Or they have heard that from people that, that they admire. And generally that would be from home. Uh, sometimes churches, unfortunately. So when she would explain this, that they're either ignorant or mean, then she would say, so what, it has nothing to do with you. You know, you're absolutely fine. You're the way God made you. He wanted you to be this way. He wanted us to be this way as a family. Then when she would say the ignorant or mean thing, she would say, so what you need to do is just file it away under either ignorance or meanness and move right along. That was my mom. Well, that, was, that sounded like very good, good wisdom. Well, it served me well. It served me well. And um, it's the reason when you ask about writing the book, uh, I knew that some of the stories that I would tell, when my children read those stories, and not just the facts of them, but the way it made me feel as um, an eight-year-old, to be told that I didn't belong in a doctor's office because of my color, I knew they would be upset as any child would when their mother had been hurt as a child. And so that's why the main reason why I waited for so long to write the book. I wanted them to read it. I wanted them to understand it. But I in no way ever wanted them to say, and I hate the people who perpetrated this kind of behavior. Well, one of the things you talk about in the book is um, that your particular skin color, which I guess was darker than your parents and your brothers. Yes. Uh, created situations that, that made you personally feel different and caused you concern about how that had an impact on your family. Yes. Uh, it's interesting because there were three children and two adults, and we were all slightly different colors. Uh, my mother was <clears throat> the most pale-skinned. I always said that her skin color reminded me of the sand at Carolina Beach. Um, and she had hazel eyes, and yes, she was a Lumbee Indian. My dad was olive, sort of dark olive with black hair, brown hair, black hair and brown hair. He was mostly bald. I meant to say brown eyes. What hair he had left was black. Uh, I was by far the darkest skinned child person in the family. And I don't know what color you would call me. I would say sort of like a light coffee color. I don't know. But brown skin that got a whole lot browner in the summertime in the country. 
and very dark hair and dark eyes. Uh, my older brother was uh, closer to my mom's coloring uh, <clears throat> with brown eyes. And my younger of the two brothers was more like my dad. So we were a rainbow of colors. And when my brothers were little, they both had, if you can believe it, um, cotton yellow hair, cotton yellow, white. And my dad said that um, his parents told him when he was born, he also had white hair that changed to dark. I never had any changing of the hair until recently. Uh, <laughs> I now have some elder hair, which I love. <laughs> but um, so what that did was it made us a um, uh, a rainbow colored family in tones from um, not chalk white, but whitish to dark brownish. And that was particularly troubling to many white supremacists of the day, because unless you were in Robinson County or a surrounding county where there were many American Indians living or in a community such as Person or uh, there were not there was not much known about the pre even the presence of Indians in North Carolina. And so people assumed that you were black. And at that point uh, in time, there was probably nothing more infuriating for white supremacists than to see a mixed race family. And um, so there were several instances when uh, one, uh, when my brothers and I went with, my dad invited my brothers and me to ride with him to uh, Whiteville, which was about 30 miles away, um, to go to a movie while he did some business in the area. And of course, we didn't get to go to very many movies. And uh, so this was a big treat. And he gave us instructions on how to go up and I was to buy the tickets and refreshments to share. And we'd go into the theater and sit down and watch the movie. And he would be there when we came back. And we did that. And uh, we went in for the first time ever and sat on the main floor of the movie theater um, and it wasn't long before I felt a tapping on my shoulder and um, the theater manager was standing there saying you all have to get up and move and I knew exactly what he meant. My brothers would have passed for white there's no doubt about that. I did not pass for white. Never have, never will. Didn't want to. And he directed us in very cold terms. And he watched us. Um, he led us up the flight of stairs to the balcony. And stood and pointed to where we were to sit. And I just felt sick because I knew that if it were um, just my brothers or my brothers and my mother and probably my brothers and my dad, they would not have had to endure that. And what was so interesting about that, aside from the uh, pain of it and the embarrassment was that as soon as my brothers and I, and they were like uh, four and five, five and six, uh, 
as soon as we sat down, there was a small group of black people um, in the balcony. And they immediately started saying, what are y'all doing up here? You don't belong up here. And they were turned to each other and said, uh, one of the young men said, well, just leave them alone. Just, if the man told them to come up here, then they have to be up here. And so, I mean, that, needless to say, was not a good experience with that movie. And my brothers absolutely didn't understand what was going on. They kept saying, what's he saying? What's he saying? And so when the movie was over and we came out and my dad was waiting for us, then, of course, my brothers um, told the story of what happened without my even, even getting a chance to say anything. And my dad just simply asked, is this true, Lena? And, you know, I couldn't talk. I just nodded my head. And what he said to me was, I am just so sorry, Lena, this happened to you and the boys. I am so sorry. I would not have brought you here if I had thought this would happen. It should never happen to you or anyone anyone because everybody should be able to sit where they want to and I'm just so sorry and it was the first time the second time that I had seen my dad I saw something on his face that I had only seen one other time and I later recognized that as pain uh, he wasn't angry that time. He was just hurt that his children were hurt. And primarily me because, you know, the boys were were quite young and um, just, you know, thought they, people were weird. And um, I've thought about that many times, how... My parents handled, they were always so gentle and always reminded me that I was uh, one of God's children, uh, that God loved me, created and loved me as I was, and that things would change. And um, they were pretty remarkable, I thought, still do. Well, tell us a little more about uh, the Indians that you are. You're Lumbee and, and Saponi. And Cherokee. Okay, so uh, Indians in North Carolina are a very small group. We number slightly over 100,000 now. And uh, the largest of the groups uh, is the Lumbees. And they are centered in Robinson County, surrounding counties, um, and in several metropolitan areas, uh, Charlotte, Fayetteville, Raleigh. Uh, my mother grew up there. And my dad was from Person County, as I mentioned before. Uh, which is about 30 miles north of Durham. It's a rural county. Um, his people at that time were called the High Plains Indians. And that was the name of the community that they lived in. A very small group of Indian people, um, probably at the largest was maybe 850 people. And they're now known as Saponi, and I will um, explain that. When the colonists came to what is now North Carolina and Virginia, of course, there were Indians all up and down the East Coast. And through colonization, um, the Indians, my people in that area, 
were forced through war and um, tribulations to move further and further inland because we didn't have many guns. We didn't know what guns were like until they were introduced. And so the Indians, one of the large group of Indians in the eastern, southeastern uh, part of Virginia, were the Saponi. And they got along fairly well for a while. And as I said, were forced to move further and further inland. And a segment of the Saponis um, came to about Emporia, Virginia, and then from there came on into the High Plains community. They, they were um, just basically run out of their home territory. And when they were moving, they were not welcomed to go and live in the um, larger community. And so they would pick these small sort of isolated areas um, to live. And it has been in the last uh, 20, 25 years that research has proven that that's how the people got to um, High Plains. And that little community bordered the um, Virginia-North Carolina line. In fact, uh, for a long time, the Indian church there was just over the line in Virginia. And many of the people who attended it were uh, in Person County on North Carolina. So uh, that that's about the um, bare bones thing about the, those two groups. Now, I also claim Cherokee ancestry because I have documentation that a uh, at the time of the Trail of Tears. A Martin, a man, Indian man in Cherokee named, his last name was Martin, Green Martin. He was a young man, uh, maybe 16. And his parents knew that his sister would not uh, survive a Trail of Tears walk. And so, like some others, they got a horse, had a horse, and they sent Green Martin and his sister to Virginia uh, to get away from having to do this Trail of Tears, what is now known as the Trail of Tears. And they went to live with an aunt. And it wasn't long before the aunt and the daughter died. And Green... Uh, being sort of a vagabond and without family there, had heard about the people, the High Plains group. And so he meandered to that part of Virginia, North Carolina, and uh, married an Indian woman there. And so uh, it's, for me, the three prongs of heritage. The Lumbee uh, are the largest group of Indians in the state. Um, you've probably read a lot about them or heard about them in recent years because the Lumbees are not fully federally recognized. Uh, they are a state-recognized tribe for sure, as are the um, Saponi and several other groups. The Cherokees are the only fully federally recognized group. And yet, they are certainly not the largest. They have about 13,000 members on their uh, rolls. 
And uh, so I grew up, my parents eventually met um, in Pembroke, where my dad had come from Robinson, from Person County to uh, finish high, to go to high school. And my mother was there, she was younger, and we think they probably met in a Methodist church uh, because my grandfather was a Methodist minister, among other things, teacher, and later uh, the first Indian postmaster in Robeson County. And so when my dad came to Robeson County and got the high school equivalency, then a Methodist minister helped him go to a Methodist college in Illinois. And he came back when he graduated, taught in the Indian school system in Sampson County for a year, and then came to Robinson County, where he was a school principal for close to 35 years. And that's where I grew up. Well, now, you talk about um, um, those occasions where you became aware of the racism, uh, yeah. and particularly because of your own personal skin color. Uh, but you also talk about uh, occasions in which you resisted. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> tell us a little bit about that. The uh, first awareness or and or the resistance. The resistance. Well... When I was a senior in college at Meredith College in Raleigh, um, a women's college, we called them girls' colleges back then. It was very small, supported by the Baptists of the state, um, and for women only. There was a tradition that uh, you joined, we didn't have sororities, we had societies, and there were only two on campus, and everybody belonged to one or the other. And the big deal with that was that you could buy a white blazer, wool blazer, and on the left side, there was a pocket, and it had the emblem of the society that um, you had joined. And this uh, choosing a society was a part of your freshman year. Well, I was just taken with this blazer. And actually, I resisted in two ways. Uh, I had mentioned to my mother about this tradition of the uh, blazers because that was something that I didn't know about when I went there. And so, uh, like in October, when this became known to me and I mentioned to my mother that I would like to have one, she said, well, I think maybe we ought to wait um, and we'll, we'll get it soon. Of course, what she really meant was that at that time I was failing my classes at Meredith and she probably thought I was going to get kicked out, but I was so determined that I was not going to hopefully get kicked out and I wanted that blazer. So without telling my mother, I ordered one. So that was resist number one. And when it came and my dad got the bill, he said, oh, that's really nice. You know, she's doing well now. So I was at home for a visit, and at that time, the banks in Lumberton were open for half a day on Saturday. And so my dad invited me to go with him uh, to do his banking business. And any time my dad invited me to go anywhere with him, just the two of us, it was a treat for me because I was definitely a daddy's girl. So, and this other thing was that I would get to wear my Meredith blazer. So, I dressed well, put my blazer on, 
and we went to the bank and there was a line uh, at the tellers, all the tellers. And my dad walked away to speak to someone he knew. And I had noticed that there was a uh, white male adult um, who kept staring in my direction. And when my dad left, he was right, the man was right behind me. Uh, he turned to me and he said, um, so that's a nice looking blazer you have on. And I said, yes, sir. And he said, where'd you get it? And I'm like, uh, I ordered it at school. And he said, school? I said, yes, sir. I'm a student at Meredith College. He said, no, I meant who, who gave it to you? And I was just livid. And I said, nobody gave it to me. I earned this jacket. I am a student at Meredith College. And under my breath, without saying it is, and white man, you better get used to it because there's going to be more coming like this. Um, you know, I just, he irritated me. He angered me. Um, if it had been two or three years later, I might have said more. Um, then there was the time when I was a senior at Meredith, and I was training to become a teacher with a uh, elementary teacher, but with a uh, minor in political science and history. And um, I got a call from the head of the Department of Education to go in and talk to him in the fall of my senior year. And I knew that I would be student teaching in the spring. I knew my grades were good. I was even on the honor roll by this time, so I couldn't imagine why he would call me into his office. And it became very clear very shortly after I went to his office. He told me, he asked me how I would feel about doing my student teaching in Robinson County. And I was stunned. And what I said to him was, uh, Robinson County, Meredith girls don't student teach in Robinson County. They do their student teaching either in the city of Raleigh schools or Wake County schools. And he paused and said, Miss Epps, we have talked to them about your teaching uh, in the schools here, and they have said no. The white parents, they said, would not allow you to teach in a white school. And we don't think it's a good idea for you to teach in a black school in the city of Raleigh. I cannot describe in two or three words how I felt. I was angry. I was just angry. And I just said to him, you know, this is not my problem, but I am not going to teach in Robinson County. My parents have paid money for me to come to Meredith. I am a Meredith student. I expect to be treated like one. And so I don't know what you're going to do. He said, we have a problem then. I'm like, no, no, we don't have a problem. I don't have a problem. You have a problem. And I expect you to solve it. And just got up and left his office. And of course, I went, walked for about 50 feet outside and there was a bench, and I sat down and thought, oh, my word, Lynn, what have you done? You have been here for three and a half years, and now you may not graduate because you can't do your student teaching. And 
I, I was just floored. I was just flabbergasted, uh, scared, and angry. But I didn't hear from him for quite some time. But he did uh, call me in in uh, right before Christmas time and said that they had arranged for me to do my student teaching in the Cary Elementary Schools, which at that time was a part of the Wake County school system. And that was fine with me because I knew that several Meredith girls were teaching in Cary and in Wake County. And so long as I was be, being treated with a modicum of equality with the other Mary students, you know, I was fine with that. That's that's always been my was always my issue. I've never wanted to be white. I never wanted to be black. I just wanted to be who God made me, an American Indian, a brown American Indian. I like who I am. And, I mean, not because it makes me any better or worse than anybody else. I just wanted to be me. And I wanted people to accept me as me. And it's because of my parents, um, I think that that was so important because they loved me as I was. And they told me that God loved me as I was. And my friends accepted me as I was. That was all I ever wanted. And I think that's the point that um, many people are unaware of in terms of American Indians in North Carolina, that we had the same laws um, that were demeaning, that were exclusionary um, as African Americans. And that certainly wasn't taught in school at the time that I was there. When we had American history, uh, U.S. history in the 11th grade, and I read the descriptions of the Indians as being savages and as, uh, I didn't recognize these people as my own. I'm sure that the Saponis, and at some point, yes, there was colonialism, and we fought for our land uh, as hard as we could. And for a number of reasons and in a number of ways, we lost control of it. But that was the whole point about the land that people didn't understand, is that we didn't consider that we owned the land when the colonists came. We shared the land. Uh, we lived off the land, but you didn't own it. You took care of it for, say, that seven generations of people could do the same thing, always looking to the future for the children. And what also people didn't know back in Jim Crow days was that Robson County uh, had was one of the poorest counties in the United States. It was also one of the most uh, diverse. I remember a Look magazine having a big article about uh, the population in the 50s, 60s, um, and probably pretty close to it now. Well, not now. It was white, black, and brown. And brown in segregation days, of course, was American Indians. Now there's even more diversity in uh, Robeson and surrounding counties because, uh, you know, there are a lot of Hispanic people who have um, moved into the area, which is fine. Uh, but 
what what is alarming is that the history books for the most part have not been brought up to date some measures there are particularly on the college level but I think it's sad that um, our children, our grandchildren, some of us have great-grandchildren, are still going to schools that don't teach about um, the struggles of Indians during the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, because that is a part of who we are. Just because you don't talk about it doesn't mean that it isn't real. Well, our time is about up. And so as a final question, um, what more uh, do you want us to know? I want you to know that American Indians in North Carolina are very strong, resilient people. We have had tribulations and we have triumphed. We have had sad times and we have happy times. And what I would like you to know is that our people, 100,000 of us in North Carolina, have made a lot of progress. Um, we have doctors, lawyers, um, engineers, executives, physicians. We're all over the place. We're in small numbers, but we are there. And yet, one of the things that concerns me greatly is that many children in our public schools from kindergarten through high school still are being bullied and demeaned because of who they are, because of their heritage. That's something that no child should ever face. And it's something that perpetuates um, negative feelings and distrust. It absolutely must stop. Another thing that our people are have wrestled with and struggled with forever is health care. Um, we have many Indian doctors, we have nurses, but we still have so many needs that are about diet and about um, good, healthy food choices. But you can't do that if you are not making a good salary because there are still so many of my people who live in poverty. And when you live in poverty, you eat what's available, and it's not always the healthiest thing. Um, many Indians in Robinson County still need job training. Now, that's not to say that many of us haven't done well both economically and socially but what those of us who have always keep in the forefront of our minds that we need your help to to stand with us and for us uh, to make sure that our needs are being met with compassion and equity and equality because that's the right thing to do and we invite you to do that i would say one of the things you can do is uh, read some books about us that are written by us um and, and that was not available for a long time but that's no longer the, the true I would start with an older book uh, called uh, The Only Land I Know, and this was published back in the 60s um, by two professors at Pembroke at that time college. Adolph Dial was a Lumbee Indian, 
uh, scholar and David Eliades. Some of the things they say is good. A lot of what they say is a good historical view. For more recent views, I suggest highly that you find the books written by Dr. Melinda Lowry. Her books deal with the Lumbee Indians um, and other groups. One is called Lumbee Indians in the Jim Crow South, and the other is the Lumbee Indians and American Struggle. And both of those books deal with how Lumbees, but it could be said for all Indians in the state that are uh, state recognized and to a large, some extent to federally recognized, how we have struggled uh, and stayed strong, how the tears somehow or another manage to, um, in many ways, turn into triumphs. That's what we want you to know about. And know that um, there are younger authors. Uh, this Dr. Lowry was at UNC Chapel Hill. She's now at Emory. But there are younger, upcoming writers. Um, Dana Larry Ramsour has written Strong Like Rodin. Um, Tanya Elk uh, Locklear has written beautiful books of poetry and stories. I could go on and on. But if you, you may not find them in your public library, but that would be a way that you can help is buy a book and put it in the library and tell your friends about it. Uh, invite people who are American Indians to uh, speak to your groups. Uh, tell them what you want to learn about, including, and this is something that people always ask me, well, you're referring to yourself as an American Indian. Uh, some people want to be called Native Americans. Other people want to be known as indigenous, and that's correct. Um, at various times in our history, we've been called a number of things, not nearly as nice as these terms, but that's a matter of preference. The Native American uh, terminology came about in the early 70s with uh, the rise of uh, a more um, front uh, forward by young people that, you know, American Indians, we're not Indians, we are, but it's sort of outdated. I use that term because for a long time it was the official um, designation of our people. It was what was on my birth certificate, on my driver's license, um, on my security when I worked for a place that had a security. And I'm not offended by it either, but you may hear me going back and forth. And some people have a preference, and the best thing to do is just say, What would you, how do you prefer to be identified? Um, just know that we're here. And when you read about us, it's so important to read about us from our perspective, hear us from our perspective. And also know that depending on what your age is, if you're an American Indian, um, you know, we're not a homogenous group, uh, just like white people are not a homogenous group. We have a lot of common interests, and we have interests that are far different from each other. And um, one of the things that many people have taken to heart is uh, using our symbols for um, things that demean us. Uh, 
feathers. You don't use feathers except for special occasions. Uh, uh, mascots. Uh, I think of what the Atlanta Braves mascot was like. It was just a character of a uh, of a human being. Uh, I know that we're the only person, groups of people who have other people trying to define who we are. Um, and that's just outrageous. When you were born and told you are an American Indian and you grew up as that, and it's on your driver's license and you went to Indian schools, and this is back in the day, we knew who we were. Um, that's not to say we want to be separatist. Some people do, some don't. But what I think that you will learn is that we are diverse. We are blessed with many gifts and talents. Uh, we don't want to be pigeonholed. Um, for the most part, many Indian people, American Indians, are people who live with great faith. Um, they may or may not say God, they may say the Creator, but we honor the divine. We know there's a divine. And it is because of that divinity in each of us that I personally feel that the most important thing we can do is tell our truth because the truth will set us free and it sets a path for others to choose to walk the path of truth and beauty about all of us and finally maybe find some peace among us. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. Thank you for so much for sharing your book uh, and writing that book uh, that helps us uh, do better uh, in the future. So well, that is, that is the only reason for writing the book and for my family to know who we are better and for others if they choose to read it to, for all of us to do better. And I thank you, David, so much. This has been an honor. It has been uh, a uh, privilege, as it always is, to share about my people um, and to know in my heart of hearts that we are so much stronger when we work together. And when we combine our divine strengths, we can make changes and live changes. Well, thank you again. And this has been a great blessing. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. Be the one.